The China Current continues its special coverage on the coronavirus outbreak. Go to our social media at the China Current and our website for interviews, videos, and podcasts. I'm James Chow. Thank you. When Dr. Sumya Swaminathan was appointed chief scientist of the World Health Organization, she became the first ever person to achieve this role. In the COVID-19 outbreak, she offers not only the skill and experience from 30 years in clinical care and research, but the ability to translate that into impactful programs shaped by science and compassion. Last week in Geneva, she gathered the best in global science and R&D funders at a WHO meeting as part of a wider action plan for the people of Wuhan and beyond. But as the weeks speed up, is there enough time to make a lasting difference? I caught her in Geneva. Dr. Somia, thank you very much for interrupting your day to do this. I want to jump straight to the global research meeting you just put together. At very short notice, but a very big and important turnout. Who came, and what skill sets were you seeking to engage? Thank you, James. Yes, even I was surprised by the kind of response and turnout that we had for this meeting. As you know, we planned it in less than ten days because we really wanted to ensure that the scientists and researchers around the world could help to tackle this outbreak,、uh, and so. We had over four hundred people that were invited. About two hundred and fifty came in person, and the rest were connected through WebEx, including a number of colleagues from China. And the head of the China CDC, George Gao, was connected for most of the meeting and made very important points. So the the whole idea was really to to gather this group of people together from all over the world. There were experts in different disciplines. Including epidemiology, social science, vaccines,、uh, virologists,、uh, they came together here. The idea was really to first of all、uh, look at the state of the art. What do we know about this disease or similar diseases? Secondly, what are the knowledge gaps? And thirdly, to really prioritize the research questions in order of importance and which ones should be addressed urgently, as opposed to which ones can be more medium. To long term, and then finally to to discuss a governance mechanism so that there's global coordination and an optimal use of resources to to generate the answers that we need. We're still at the early stages, but many weeks have begun to go by. What more do we know about the epidemiology of this virus, and how's that going to help us? So we're learning a little bit every day, and I think what we know now is that this virus is—it belongs to the family of the SARS-related coronaviruses, but it's—it seems to be more transmissible, human to human, than SARS or MERS coronaviruses,、um, but perhaps has a milder clinical course. So what we know now from forty-four thousand patients that were analyzed in Wuhan and presented just、uh, recently, that about eighty percent of infections are mild. So you have symptoms like fever, headache, cough, fatigue, and then you recover. So a flu-like illness. About fifteen to seventeen percent can be quite severe, and about five percent end up with critical illness in ICUs. 
and and there's a very high mortality among those who end up in the ICU with acute respiratory distress syndrome. But um, that's a small minority of of patients. So we're learning more about clinical course. We yet don't understand fully the epidemiology in terms of how easily it spreads. You number called the R0 or the R0, which is how many people uh, can be infected by one infected person. And the initial estimates were between two and three. And, and we're still going with those estimates. But of course, this changes with the uh, with conditions, with, uh, with the implementation of certain measures, etc. But, you know, how it spreads, children seem to be relatively less affected. So only about 1% of people affected so far are, are children under 15, and they have a relatively milder cause. So again, why? Um, the older you are, the more the other diseases you have, the more uh, uh, dangerous this is, because then you're likely to get more severe disease. We, of course, don't know the source of this virus, which animal it came from, when it came, and when it jumped. It's the virus is closely related to several bat coronaviruses that have been isolated from that region in China, southern China. So, and coronaviruses, the bats have many, many types. So it's likely that this originated in a bat, but then whether it jumped directly to humans or through an intermediate animal, and what animal that is, there have been many uh, suggestions made, but no conclusive results on that. So that's an important area of research. Unless we know that, we can't prevent further events from happening, spillover events. And then clinical management. But this was really highlighted by Dr. Gao. Uh, the two areas he highlighted as being of very urgent interest to the, the Chinese or trying to control this outbreak is a rapid diagnostic test so that you can use the test out in the community, out in primary healthcare centers and, and really diagnose people earlier. And the second was optimal case management what's the best way, what's the standard way of managing people who end up in hospital, what combination of drugs and supportive treatments. So these were two very urgent issues highlighted. And we're working on also a clinical severity score so that we can have a standardized score, which scientists across the world, clinicians could use to classify how people are doing in terms of you know being from asymptomatic all the way to severe illness and death so that there's a standard way of, uh, of looking at things. We have a standard case report form that's up on our website. We're encouraging all doctors to use that case report form and submit the data to WHO so that we can then gather a database uh, and, and learn more from uh, from that. Um, then in the, in the more medium term, of course, are the clinical trials for both for drugs, for therapeutics and uh, even longer is, is for vaccines because therapeutics, there are a few protease inhibitors and antivirals which in the lab seem to have good activity against this virus. And so there's a drug called lopinavir-ritonavir, which is an antiretroviral drug that's in clinical trials. And another experimental drug called remdesivir, which was tried for Ebola, which was not very effective for Ebola but which is now being tested in, in another clinical trial in China. Should we be looking to innovate on an existing therapy rather than starting from the ground up with a completely new vaccine, in a sense? Exactly. So what is needed now is a therapy to save people's lives and to prevent further spread of infection. The vaccine, as you mentioned, is a longer-term uh, 
product that we might need if indeed this becomes an endemic disease in humans and it's you know becomes a disease like flu which flares up every year then people will need a vaccine to prevent this but right now the vaccine isn't going to come fast enough to have any impact so what can have impact are the epidemic public health measures the quarantine etc that china's already doing and secondly better treatments for people who end up in hospital with severe illness and that's where these clinical trials there are over 80 clinical trials by the way that have already begun in china that are registered in the in the registry so so and despite all the pressure they are under they've been able to really uh, initiate quite a lot of very useful research and so we should get in a few weeks or months the results from some of these studies to show some of these antiviral drugs are useful are protective my natural urge wants to ask you questions like when are we going to reach a peak of the outbreak or how close are we to human trials for any candidate vaccines or how similar is this to becoming uh, a flu an endemic flu and could this be the new flu going forward but obviously we're not at that stage to answer those kinds of questions now the speculation around those types of very broad open questions how far is it distracting from your work as a scientist and as the chief scientist at WHO i think those are all excellent questions james and that's why we're trying to focus on what is important now and versus what is important but an interesting to know but is not going to have an immediate impact so what is important now is best ways of protecting people from getting the infection including healthcare workers we've seen a huge number of healthcare workers get infected in this outbreak it's really unfortunate and we must find the best ways of protecting healthcare workers and of course family members and friends from getting infected in terms of you know when is it peaked i think we have to wait for a few more days or weeks what we do see now is that the number of new cases in wuhan has stabilized so for many many days now we've seen a slow reduction in the number of cases being reported daily the number of deaths is still quite high it's too early to say whether this is the beginning of the downside curve of the of the outbreak we have to wait but we're hoping this could be a good sign of course we also don't know what's going to happen in all the other countries where this virus has has already entered and whether the containment efforts heroic containment efforts being put in place now would would keep it limited what are those heroic containment efforts you refer to well many countries have set up quarantine facilities um, and anyone with a history of travel is you know being quarantined and tested and that there's contact tracing people who've come into contact with people with um, diagnosed coronavirus infection are being actually traced and found and tested um and most country uh, where cases have been reported have done it have done it um africa is one continent where we've only seen one case being reported from egypt so far labs across africa about 17 labs are now equipped to detect this infection and testing has started but um probably not as as widely they're not covering as wide a net as, as some of the more Uh, high income countries are doing um 
In terms of whether we will ever need a vaccine, again, that question cannot be answered today because we don't know the trajectory that this outbreak is taking. This virus may be like SARS that we're able to contain it and it doesn't come back. Or it could be lingering human infection that just stays at human transmission. And, and many of these viruses do change their characteristics once they become established in humans. Uh, it could get milder, it could just become another uh, virus that causes a common cold, or it could still continue to cause severe illness. So a lot of open questions which will be answered with time. Dr. Tedros, the Director General, uh, declared a public health emergency of international concern precisely for the reasons of protecting countries with weaker health systems and also to exercise the ability of FIKE, which is to monitor and engage your member states so that they take appropriate levels of action. Are we seeing solidarity in science across those fronts? We're seeing absolutely unprecedented global solidarity, James, uh, as far as the desire to, to do something, to tackle this new virus. I mean, I think the, the world scientists have really taken it upon themselves as a collective challenge to, to their skills and their resources. And so what we saw at the two-day meeting here in Geneva, and subsequently we've had the research funders, we had about 25 research funders here, health research funders, and they all agreed to coordinate and collaborate in terms of funding the high priority questions, and also in terms of sharing uh, what they're doing, who they're funding, the result. The other thing, the journals around the world have responded by opening up preprint servers so that manuscripts are being put on, on the server well before they're peer-reviewed or published. And so we're able to, uh, and this was a call that went out from WHO post the Ebola outbreak because scientists were keeping data to publish later. This time it's been very different. You've seen you're, huge numbers. You're the central funnel, so to speak, where all those papers are now going through. Am I right? And I understand that paywalls are also coming down on coronavirus-related content in journals yes. like Lancet, like Nature. Yes, exactly. So paywalls have come down. Most of these journals have a page devoted to coronavirus, open access. We have access to all the the preprints, the manuscripts that are being submitted. And um, and there are many now preprint servers around the world. Even the WHO Bulletin put out a call saying we will uh, encourage uh, publication uh, on this topic to be sent to us so that we can put it on a, on, a, on a server for open access. And it's only that open sharing of data. One other thing I want to mention is the sharing of the genetic sequences because that's been critical to this outbreak. If, we, if China had not shared the sequences of the first six uh, genetic sequences they had on an open platform, the world would not have been as prepared because within a few hours of those sequences being shared, labs around the world were able to create diagnostic tests to test people in their own countries and vaccine companies and academics working on vaccines were able to create constructs. So within a few days, we're, we're hearing about vaccine candidates, which would never have been the case in the past. So, and it was all triggered by the early sharing of the sequence data. Well, we keep on hearing about 
the emergency hospital in China taking 10 days exactly to be built. That's incredible. But it took you only around that same amount of short time to get the best of the world into one room physically and virtually uh, to help lead them on an important discussion and a work plan. I guess the question is, what's going to be the legacy of those two days together? And also, what are your next steps in terms of your priority streams for this outbreak? So we uh, had nine work streams during the meeting. So we had some plenary discussions and then we had working groups that went away and came up with a plan. The working groups were in topics like animal reservoirs, epidemiology and transmission, infection prevention and control, therapeutics, vaccines, social sciences and ethics. So on Friday, which is like three days after the meeting or two days after the meeting was over, we put up the initial summary of the meeting report on the website by this Friday. So a week from then, we will have the, the full meeting report with all the working group um, priority research questions. And by the end of the month, by the end of February, we should have a research roadmap. Now, the research roadmap will lay out the, the priority research questions in each of these areas and also address some of the cross-cutting uh, issues. And that will enable both scientists and academics, but also funders to converge around those topics and set up collaborative research programs. Now, it's absolutely key that we have Chinese and doctors and researchers. So we've ensured that each of the working groups will have several Chinese um, scientists and physicians from the ground because most of the research at this time is being conducted in China. So we have an accelerated timeline to produce the roadmap. What we hope it will do is, is guide research funders and direct them in the areas where this global scientific community has agreed, has come to a consensus on, on what the top questions are. Can we briefly touch on the naming COVID-19? COVID obviously means coronavirus disease 19. Um, I just want to ask you about a very important aspect of that, because namings of viruses are also linked to preventing unnecessary stigma. How does that work in this particular case? Yes, that's a good question. In fact, that's why we took a little bit of time to name this virus, because there are certain principles established for naming of diseases. In the past, we've had infectious diseases named after the city or the place of origin or the river, you know, Ebola, Zika, etc. Um, and sometimes even uh, bacteria, etc. named after cities stigmatize it, it does stigmatize a certain place or a, or a person or, or a community so that was to be avoided in in all cases and it has to be factual descriptive of the type of disease and easy for people to understand and to and to pronounce and short enough you know so you can record it so it's mainly for the international classification of diseases so that when a diagnosis is made you have a clear description and it, it's coded so that's why we came with coronavirus disease. And, the, and, and then there's a hyphen 19 because this disease was first described in 2019. Uh, and there is a possibility that there'll be more coronavirus diseases, newer types of diseases that might be described later. If there are new coronaviruses that end up causing human disease sometime in the future, you have the possibility of saying coronavirus disease 25 or 
30. So, so that's why the 19 was added on. Um, the virologists name the virus and WHO names the disease. So there's a difference uh, in the way that is done. I have to finish by asking you about bringing science to the people because that's what you do. You break down very complex ideas in ways that we can really understand them and apply them to our own lifestyles. You went to the Munich Security Conference to carry not just a message of science, but you went there also to carry an urgent message of the protection of health workers and the communities that they serve. What's the last thing that you would want everyone listening and watching this to keep in mind going forward? I would say that, you know, this is a new um, viral infection. We've known now for some time that the world is going to have more viral infections and that most of these are going to come from uh, animal sources. Uh, and so we need to be prepared. I think it's a good test for us as a global community to prepare ourselves uh, for these type of uh, outbreaks, especially if they're, you know, through the, the respiratory route and they can spread easily. But I think what's important is, is to avoid panic, to avoid fear, and most of all, to avoid um, stigmatizing and stereotyping a certain um, groups or communities uh, of people because these infections can affect anyone anywhere. They can arise anywhere. It's a matter of chance that it came in China this time. Tomorrow it could be arising in some other country. And so I think it's more and more important that we look at this as a test of global solidarity, global strength, and global preparedness. Because as Dr. Tedros often says, that we are only as strong as our weakest link. And so it's not just enough to strengthen ourselves within our borders. We need to ensure the world is prepared, that everybody is equally well prepared. And so I think that's where we need to focus now, perhaps more focus on the weakest areas in the lowest income countries to ensure that they're protected against this outbreak, but also, and very important, be prepared for what we describe as a pathogen X, the unknown disease that is sure to come again one day. This COVID-19 turned out to be pathogen X, but there are going to be more pathogen Xs in the future. And I think we need to pay heed to preparedness for that, both in terms of scientific preparedness, but also in terms of public health preparedness. Dr. Somia, thank you very much for applying your skill and experience to this very important response. And thank you to everyone at the World Health Organization, not just for being the technical agency, but also being the humanitarian one as well. Thank you. Thank you, James. Pleasure talking to you. Good luck.